Chapter 6, page 54. Into the Forest. I wish the MacReady would hurry up and take all these people away, said Susan presently. I'm getting horribly cramped. And what a filthy smell of camphor, said Edmund. I expect the pockets of these coats are full of it, said Susan, to keep away the moths. There's something sticking into my back, said Peter. And isn't it cold, said Susan. Now that you mention it, it is cold, said Peter. And hang it all, it's wet, too. What's the matter with this place? I'm sitting on something wet. It's getting wetter every minute. He struggled to his feet. Let's get out, said Edmund. They've gone. Oh, said Susan suddenly, and everyone asked her what was the matter. I'm sitting against a tree, said Susan. And look, it's getting light over there. By Jove, you're right, said Peter. And look there, and there, it's trees all round. And this wet stuff is snow. Why, I do believe we've got into Lucy's wood after all. And now there was no mistaking it, and all four children stood blinking in the daylight of a winter day. Behind them were coats hanging on pegs. In front of them were snow-covered trees. Peter turned at once to Lucy. I apologize for not believing you, he said. I'm sorry. Will you shake hands? Of course, said Lucy, and did. And now, said Susan, what do we do next? Do, said Peter. Why, go and explore the wood, of course. Ugh, said Susan, stamping her feet. It's pretty cold. What about putting on some of these coats? They're not ours, said Peter doubtfully. I'm sure nobody would mind, said Susan. It isn't as if we wanted to take them out of the house. We shan't take them even out of the wardrobe. I never thought of that, Sue, said Peter. Of course, now you put it that way, I see. No one could say you had bagged a coat as long as you leave it in the wardrobe where you found it. And I suppose this whole country is in the wardrobe. They immediately carried out Susan's very sensible plan. The coats are rather too big for them, so that they came down to their heels, and looked more like royal robes than coats when they had put them on. But they all felt a good deal warmer, and each thought the others looked better in their new get-ups and more suitable to the landscape. We can pretend we are Arctic explorers, said Lucy. This is going to be exciting enough without pretending, said Peter, as he began leading the way forward into the forest. There were heavy darkish clouds overhead, and it looked as if there might be more snow before night. I say, began Edmund presently, oughtn't we to be bearing a bit more to the left, that is, if we are aiming for the lamp post? He had forgotten for the moment that he must pretend never to have been in the wood before. The moment the words were out of his mouth, he realized that he had given himself away. Everyone stopped. Everyone stared at him. Peter whistled. So, you really were here, he said. That time Lou said she'd met you in here, and you made out she was telling lies. There was a dead silence. Well, of all the poisonous little beasts, said Peter, and shrugged his shoulders and said no more. There seemed, indeed, no more to say, and presently the four resumed their journey, but Edmund was saying to himself, I'll pay you all out for this, you pack of stuck-up, self-satisfied prigs. Where are we going, anyway, said Susan, chiefly for the sake of changing the subject. I think Lou ought to be the leader, said Peter. Goodness knows she deserves it. Where will you take us, Lou? 
What about going to see Mr. Tumnus? said Lucy. He's the nice fawn I told you about. Everyone agreed to this, and off they went, walking briskly and stamping their feet. Lucy proved a good leader. At first she wondered whether she would be able to find the way, but she recognized an odd-looking tree on one place and a stump in another and brought them on to where the ground became uneven and into the little valley and at last to the very door of Mr. Tumnus's cave. But there a terrible surprise awaited them. The door had been wrenched off its hinges and broken to bits. Inside the cave was dark and cold and had the damp feel and smell of a place that had not been lived in for several days. Snow had drifted in from the doorway and was heaped on the floor, mixed with something black, which turned out to be the charred sticks and ashes from the fire. Someone had apparently flung it about the room and then stamped it out. The crockery lay smashed on the floor, and the picture of the fawn's father had been slashed into shreds with a knife. "'This is a pretty good washout,' said Edmund. "'Not much good coming here.' "'What is this?' said Peter, stooping down. He had just noticed a piece of paper which had been nailed through the carpet to the floor. "'Is there anything written on it?' asked Susan. "'Yes, I think there is,' answered Peter. "'But I can't read it in this light. Let's get out into the open air.' They all went out in the daylight and crowded round Peter as he read out the following words. The former occupant of these premises, the Fawn Tumnus, is under arrest and awaiting his trial on a charge of high treason against Her Imperial Majesty Jadis, Queen of Narnia, Chatelaine of Caer Paravel, Empress of the Lone Islands, etc., also of comforting her said Majesty's enemies, harboring spies, and fraternizing with humans. Signed, Maugrim, Captain of the Secret Police. Long live the Queen! The children stared at each other. "'I don't know that I'm going to like this place after all,' said Susan. "'Who is this queen, Lou?' said Peter. "'Do you know anything about her?' "'She isn't a real queen at all,' answered Lucy. "'She's a horrible witch, the White Witch. "'Everyone, all the wood people, hate her. "'She has made an enchantment over the whole country "'so that it is always winter here and never Christmas.' "'I... I wonder if there's any point in going on, said Susan. I mean, it doesn't seem particularly safe here, and it looks as if it won't be much fun either, and it's getting colder every minute, and we've brought nothing to eat. What about just going home? Oh, but we can't. We can't, said Lucy suddenly. Don't you see? We can't just go home, not after this. It is all on my account that the poor fawn has got into this trouble. He hid me from the witch and showed me the way back. That's what it means by comforting the Queen's enemies and fraternizing with humans. We simply must try to rescue him. A lot we could do, said Edmund, when we haven't even got anything to eat. Shut up, you, said Peter, who was still very angry with Edmund. What do you think, Susan? I've a horrid feeling that Lou is right, said Susan. I don't want to go a step further, and I wish we'd never come. "'But I think we must try to do something for Mr. Whatever-his-name-is-I mean the fawn.' "'That's what I feel, too,' said Peter. "'I'm worried about having no food with us. "'I'd vote for going back and getting something from the larder. "'Only there doesn't seem to be any certainty of getting into this country again when once you've got out of it. "'I think we'll have to go on.' "'So do I,' said both the girls. "'If only we knew where the poor chap was in prison,' said Peter.' 
They were all still wondering what to do next when Lucy said, Look, there's a robin with such a red breast. It's the first bird I've seen here, I say. I wonder, can birds talk in Narnia? It almost looks as if it wanted to say something to us. Then she turned to the robin and said, Please, can you tell us where Tumnus the fawn has been taken to? As she said this, she took a step toward the bird. It at once flew away, but only as far as to the next tree. There it perched and looked at them very hard, as if it understood all they had been saying. Almost without noticing that they had done so, the four children went a step or two nearer to it. At this the robin flew away again to the next tree, and once more looked at them very hard. You couldn't have found a robin with a redder chest or a brighter eye. Do you know, said Lucy, I really believe he means us to follow him. I've an idea he does, said Susan. What do you think, Peter? Well, we might as well try it, answered Peter. The robin appeared to understand the matter thoroughly. It kept going from tree to tree, always a few yards ahead of them, but always so near that they could easily follow it. In this way, it led them on slightly downhill. Wherever the robin alighted, a little shower of snow would fall off the branch. Presently the clouds parted overhead, and the winter sun came out, and the snow all around them grew dazzlingly bright. They had been traveling in this way for about half an hour, with the two girls in front, when Edmund said to Peter, "'If you're not still too high and mighty to talk to me, I've something to say which you'd better listen to.' "'What is it?' asked Peter. "'Hush! Not so loud,' said Edmund. "'There's no good frightening the girls. "'But have you realized what we're doing?' "'What?' said Peter, lowering his voice to a whisper. "'We're following a guide we know nothing about. "'How do we know which side that bird is on? "'Why shouldn't it be leading us into a trap?' "'That's a nasty idea. Still, a robin, you know. "'They're good birds in all the stories I've ever read. "'I'm sure a robin wouldn't be on the wrong side. "'If it comes to that, which is the right side? "'How do we know that the fawns are in the right and the queen, "'yes, I know we've been told she's a witch, is in the wrong. "'We don't really know anything about either. "'The fawn saved Lucy. "'He said he did, but how do we know?' And there's another thing, too. Has anyone the least idea of the way home from here? Great Scott, said Peter. I hadn't thought of that. And no chance of dinner either, said Edmund. Chapter 7. A Day with the Beavers While the two boys were whispering behind, both the girls suddenly cried, Oh! and stopped. The robin, cried Lucy, the robin! It's flown away! And so it had, right out of sight. And now what are we to do, said Edmund, giving Peter a look which was as much as to say, what did I tell you? Shh, look, said Susan. What, said Peter. There's something moving among the trees over there to the left. They all stared as hard as they could, and no one felt very comfortable. There it goes again, said Susan presently. I saw it that time too, said Peter. It's still there. It's just gone behind that big tree. What is it? asked Lucy, trying very hard not to sound nervous. Whatever it is, said Peter, it's dodging us. It's something that doesn't want to be seen. Let's go home, said Susan. And then, though nobody said it out loud, everyone suddenly realized the same fact that Edmund had whispered to Peter at the end of the last chapter. They were lost. What's it like? said Lucy. It's... It's a kind of animal, said Susan, and then, look, look, quick, there it is. 
they all saw at this time a whiskered furry face which had looked out at them from behind a tree. But this time it didn't immediately draw back. Instead, the animal put its paw against its mouth just as humans put their finger on their lips when they are signaling to you to be quiet. Then it disappeared again. The children all stood holding their breath. A moment later the stranger came out from behind the tree, glanced all round as if it were afraid someone was watching, said, Hush! made signs to them to join it in the thicker bit of wood where it was standing, and then once more disappeared. I know what it is, said Peter. It's a beaver. I saw the tail. It wants us to go to it, said Susan, and it is warning us not to make a noise. I know, said Peter. The question is, are we to go to it or not? What do you think, Lou? I think it's a nice beaver, said Lucy. Yes, but how do we know, said Edmund. Shan't we have to risk it, said Susan. I mean, it's no good just standing here, and I feel I want some dinner. At this moment the beaver again popped its head out from behind the tree and beckoned earnestly to them. Come on, said Peter, let's give it a try. All keep close together. We ought to be a match for one beaver if it turns out to be an enemy. So the children all got close together and walked up to the tree and in behind it, and there, sure enough, they found the beaver. But it still drew back, saying to them in a hoarse, throaty whisper, Further in! Come further in! Right in here! We're not safe in the open! Only when it had led them into a dark spot where four trees grew so close together that their boughs met, and the brown earth and pine needles could be seen underfoot because no snow had been able to fall there, did it begin to talk to them. "'Are you the sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve?' it said. "'We're some of them,' said Peter. "'Shh!' said the beaver. "'Not so loud, please. We're not safe even here.' "'Why, who are you afraid of?' said Peter. "'There's no one here but ourselves.' "'There are the trees,' said the beaver. "'They're always listening. Most of them are on our side. "'But there are trees that would betray us to her.' You know who I mean, and it nodded its head several times. If it comes to talking about sides, said Edmund, how do we know you're a friend? Not meaning to be rude, Mr. Beaver, added Peter, but you see we're strangers. Quite right, quite right, said the beaver. Here is my token. With these words it held up to them a little white object. They all looked at it in surprise, till suddenly Lucy said, "'Oh, of course, it's my handkerchief, the one I gave to poor Mr. Tumnus.' "'That's right,' said the beaver. "'Poor fellow. "'He got wind of the arrest before it actually happened and handed this over to me. "'He said that if anything happened to him, I must meet you here and take you on to—' "'Here the beaver's voice sank into silence, and it gave one or two very mysterious nods.' then signaling to the children to stand as close around it as they possibly could so that their faces were actually tickled by its whiskers, it added in a low whisper, They say Aslan is on the move, perhaps has already landed. And now a very curious thing happened. None of the children knew who Aslan was any more than you do, but the moment the beaver had spoken these words, everyone felt quite different. Perhaps it has sometimes happened to you in a dream that someone says something which you don't understand, but in the dream it feels as if it had some enormous meaning, 
either a terrifying one, which turns the whole dream into a nightmare, or else a lovely meaning, too lovely to put into words, which makes the dream so beautiful that you remember it all your life and are always wishing you could get into that dream again. It was like that now. At the name of Aslan, each one of the children felt something jump in its inside. Edmund felt a sensation of mysterious horror. Peter felt suddenly brave and adventurous. Susan felt as if some delicious smell or some delightful strain of music had just floated by her. And Lucy got the feeling you have when you wake up in the morning and realize that it is the beginning of the holidays or the beginning of summer. "'And what about Mr. Tumnus?' said Lucy. "'Where is he?' "'Shh!' said the beaver. "'Not here. I must bring you where we can have a real talk, and also dinner.' No one except Edmund felt any difficulty about trusting the beaver now, and everyone, including Edmund, was very glad to hear the word dinner. They therefore all hurried along behind their new friend, who led them at a surprisingly quick pace, and always in the thickest parts of the forest, for over an hour. Everyone was feeling very tired and very hungry, when suddenly the trees began to get thinner in front of them, and the ground to fall steeply downhill. A minute later they came out under the open sky, the sun was still shining, and found themselves looking down on a fine sight. They were standing on the edge of a steep, narrow valley at the bottom of which ran, at least it would have been running if it hadn't been frozen, a fairly large river. Just below them a dam had been built across this river, and when they saw it everyone suddenly remembered that of course beavers are always making dams and felt quite sure that Mr. Beaver had made this one. They also noticed that he now had a sort of modest expression on his face, the sort of look people have when you are visiting a garden they've made or reading a story they've written. So it was only common politeness when Susan said, "'What a lovely dam!' And Mr. Beaver didn't say hush this time, but merely a trifle, merely a trifle, and it isn't really finished. Above the dam there was what ought to have been a deep pool, but was now, of course, a level floor of dark green ice. And below the dam, much lower down, was more ice. But instead of being smooth, this was all frozen into the foamy and wavy shapes in which the water had been rushing along at the very moment when the frost came. And where the water had been trickling over and spurting through the dam there was now a glittering wall of icicles, as if the side of the dam had been covered all over with flowers and wreaths and festoons of the purest sugar. And out in the middle, and partly on top of the dam, was a funny little house shaped rather like an enormous beehive, and from a hole in the roof smoke was going up, so that when you saw it, especially if you were hungry, you at once thought of cooking and became hungrier than you were before. That was what the others chiefly noticed, but Edmund noticed something else. A little lower down the river there was another small river which came down another small valley to join it. And looking up that valley, Edmund could see two small hills, and he was almost sure they were the two hills which the white witch had pointed out to him when he parted from her at the lamp-post that other day. And then between them, he thought, must be her palace, only a mile off or less and he thought about Turkish delight, and about being a king. And I wonder how Peter will like that, he asked himself. And horrible ideas came into his head. Here we are, said Mr. Beaver, and it looks as if Mrs. Beaver is expecting us. I'll lead the way. 
but be careful and don't slip. The top of the dam was wide enough to walk on, though not, for humans, a very nice place to walk because it was covered with ice. And though the frozen pool was level with it on one side, there was a nasty drop to the lower river on the other. Along this route, Mr. Beaver led them in single file right out to the middle, where they could look a long way up the river and a long way down it. And when they had reached the middle, they were at the door of the house. "'Here we are, Mrs. Beaver,' said Mr. Beaver. "'I found them. Here are the sons and daughters of Adam and Eve.' And they all went in. The first thing Lucy noticed as she went in was a burring sound, and the first thing she saw was a kind-looking old she-beaver, sitting in the corner with a thread in her mouth, working busily at her sewing machine, and it was from it that the sound came. She stopped her work and got up as soon as the children came in. "'So you've come at last,' she said, holding out both her wrinkled old paws. "'At last! To think that ever I should live to see this day! The potatoes are on boiling, and the kettle's singing, and I dare say, Mr. Beaver, you'll get us some fish!' "'That I will,' said Mr. Beaver, and he went out of the house, Peter went with him, and across the ice of the deep pool to where he had a little hole in the ice, which he kept open every day with his hatchet. They took a pail with them. Mr. Beaver sat down quietly at the edge of the hole. He didn't seem to mind it being so chilly, looked hard into it, then suddenly shot in his paw, and before you could say Jack Robinson, had whisked out a beautiful trout. Then he did it all over again until they had a fine catch of fish. Meanwhile, the girls were helping Mrs. Beaver to fill the kettle and lay the table and cut the bread and put the plates in the oven to heat and draw a huge jug of beer for Mr. Beaver from a barrel which stood in one corner of the house and to put on the frying pan and get the dripping hot. Lucy thought the beavers had a very snug little home, though it was not at all like Mr. Tumnus's cave. There were no books or pictures, and instead of beds there were bunks, like on board ship, built into the wall, and there were hams and strings of onions hanging from the roof, and against the walls were gumboots and oilskins and hatchets and pairs of shears and spades and trowels and things for carrying mortar in and fishing rods and fishing nets and sacks, and the cloth on the table, though very clean, was very rough. Just as the frying pan was nicely hissing, Peter and Mr. Beaver came in with the fish, which Mr. Beaver had already opened with his knife and cleaned out in the open air. You can think how good the new-caught fish smelled while they were frying, and how the hungry children longed for them to be done, and how very much hungrier still they had become before Mr. Beaver said, Now we're nearly ready. Susan drained the potatoes, and then put them all back in the empty pot to dry on the side of the range while Lucy was helping Mrs. Beaver to dish up the trout, so that in a very few minutes everyone was drawing up their stools it was all three-legged stools in the beaver's house, except for Mrs. Beaver's own special rocking chair beside the fire, and preparing to enjoy themselves. There was a jug of creamy milk for the children, Mr. Beaver stuck to beer, and a great big lump of deep yellow butter in the middle of the table from which everyone took as much as he wanted to go with his potatoes, and all the children thought, and I agree with them, that there's nothing to beat good fresh-water fish if you eat it when it has been alive half an hour ago and has come out of the pan half a minute ago. And when they had finished the fish, Mrs. Beaver brought unexpectedly out of the oven a great and gloriously sticky marmalade roll, steaming hot, and at the same time moved the kettle onto the fire 
so that when they had finished the marmalade roll, the tea was made and ready to be poured out. And when each person had got his or her cup of tea, each person shoved back his or her stool so as to be able to lean against the wall and gave a long sigh of contentment. And now, said Mr. Beaver, pushing away his empty beer mug and pulling his cup of tea toward him, if you'll just wait till I've got my pipe lit up and going nicely, why, now we can get to business. It's snowing again, he added, cocking his eye at the window. That's all the better, because it means we shan't have any visitors, and if anyone should have been trying to follow you, why, he won't find any tracks. Chapter 8. What Happened After Dinner And now, said Lucy, do please tell us what's happened to Mr. Tumnus. Ah, uh, that's bad, said Mr. Beaver, shaking his head. That's a very, very bad business. There's no doubt he was taken off by the police. I got that from a bird who saw it done. But where's he been taken to? asked Lucy. Well, they were heading northward when they were last seen. And we all know what that means. No, we don't, said Susan. Mr. Beaver shook his head in a very gloomy fashion. "'I'm afraid it means they were taking him to her house,' he said. "'But what'll they do to him, Mr. Beaver?' gasped Lucy. "'Well,' said Mr. Beaver, "'you can't exactly say for sure. "'But there's not many taken in there that ever comes out again. "'Statues, all full of statues, they say it is, "'in the courtyard and up the stairs and in the hall.' People she's turned, he paused and shuddered, turned into stone. But Mr. Beaver, said Lucy, can't we, I mean, we must do something to save him. It's too dreadful, and it's all on my account. I don't doubt you'd save him if you could, dearie, said Mrs. Beaver, but you've no chance of getting into that house against her will and ever coming out alive. "'Couldn't we have some stratagem?' said Peter. "'I mean, couldn't we dress up as something, "'or pretend to be old peddlers or anything, "'or watch till she has gone out, or, oh, hang it all, "'there must be some way. "'This fawn saved my sister at his own risk, Mr. Beaver. "'We can't just leave him to be, to be, to have that done to him.' "'It's no good, son of Adam,' said Mr. Beaver, no good you're trying, of all people. But now that Aslan is on the move... Oh, yes, tell us about Aslan, said several voices at once. For once again, that strange feeling, like the first signs of spring, like good news, had come over them. Who is Aslan? asked Susan. Aslan? said Mr. Beaver. Why, don't you know? He's the king. He's the lord of the whole wood. But not often here, you understand. Never in my time or my father's time. But the word has reached us that he has come back. He is in Narnia at this moment. He'll settle the White Queen all right. It is he, not you, that will save Mr. Tumnus. She won't turn him into stone, too, said Edmund. "'Lord love you, son of Adam, what a simple thing to say,' answered Mr. Beaver with a great laugh. <laughs> "'Ha! 
turn him into stone. If she can stand on her two feet and look him in the face, it'll be the most she can do, and more than I expect of her. No, no. He'll put all to rights, as it says in an old rhyme in these parts. Wrong will be right when Oslan comes in sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bears his teeth, winter meets its death. And when he shakes his mane, we shall have spring again. You'll understand when you see him. But shall we see him? asked Susan. Why, daughter of Eve, that's what I brought you here for. I'm to lead you where you shall meet him, said Mr. Beaver. Is, is he a man? asked Lucy. Aslan, a man, said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. I tell you he is the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of beasts? Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then isn't he safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. I'm longing to see him, said Peter, even if I do feel frightened when it comes to the point. That's right, son of Adam, said Mr. Beaver, bringing his paw down on the table with a crash that made all the cups and saucers rattle. And so you shall. Word has been sent that you are to meet him tomorrow, if you can, at the stone table. Where's that? said Lucy. I'll show you, said Mr. Beaver. It's down the river a good step from here. I'll take you to it. But meanwhile, what about poor Mr. Tumnus? said Lucy. The quickest way you can help him is by going to meet Aslan, said Mr. Beaver. Once he's with us, then we can begin doing things. Not that we don't need you too, for that's another of the old rhymes. When Adam's flesh and Adam's bone sits at care paravel in throne, the evil time will be over and done. So... Things must be drawing near their end now. He's come and you've come. We've heard of Aslan coming into these parts before, long ago. Nobody can say when, but there's never been any of your race here before. That's what I don't understand, Mr. Beaver, said Peter. I mean, isn't the witch herself human? She'd like us to believe it, said Mr. Beaver, and it's on that that she bases her claim to be queen. But she's no daughter of Eve. She comes of your father Adam's, here Mr. Beaver bowed, your father Adam's first wife. Her they called Lilith, and she was one of the jinn. That's what she comes from on one side, and on the other side she comes of the giants. No, no, there isn't a drop of real human blood in the witch. 
That's why she's bad all through, Mr. Beaver, said Mrs. Beaver. True enough, Mrs. Beaver, replied he. There may be two views about humans, meaning no offense to the present company, but there's no two views about things that look like humans and aren't. I've known good dwarfs, said Mrs. Beaver. So have I, now you come to speak of it, said her husband. But precious few, and they were the ones least like men. But in general, take my advice, when you meet anything that's going to be human and isn't yet, or used to be human once and isn't now, or ought to be human and isn't, you keep your eyes on it and feel for your hatchet. And that's why the witch is always on the lookout for any humans in Narnia. She's been watching for you this many a year, and if she knew there were four of you, she'd be more dangerous still. What's that to do with it? asked Peter. Because of another prophecy, said Mr. Beaver, down at Care Paravel, that's the castle on the seacoast down at the mouth of this river, which ought to be the capital of the whole country, if all was as it should be. Down at Care Paravel there are four thrones, and it's a saying in Narnia, time out of mind, that when two sons of Adam and two daughters of Eve sit in those four thrones, then it will be the end not only of the white witch's reign, but of her life. And that is why we had to be so cautious as we came along. For if she knew about you four, your lives wouldn't be worth a shake of my whiskers. All the children had been attending so hard to what Mr. Beaver was telling them that they had noticed nothing else for a long time. Then during the moment of silence, that followed his last remark, Lucy suddenly said, I say, where's Edmund? There was a dreadful pause. And then everyone began asking, Who saw him last? How long has he been missing? Is he outside? And then all rushed to the door and looked out. The snow was falling thickly and steadily. The green ice of the pool had vanished under a thick white blanket. And from where the little house stood in the center of the dam, you could hardly see either bank. Out they went, plunging well over their ankles into the soft new snow, and went round the house in every direction. Edmund! Edmund! They called till they were hoarse. But the silently falling snow seemed to muffle their voices, and there was not even an echo in answer. How perfectly dreadful, said Susan, as they at last came back in despair. Oh, how I wish we'd never come. What on earth are we to do, Mr. Beaver? said Peter. Do? said Mr. Beaver, who was already putting on his snow boots. Do? We must be off at once. We haven't a moment to spare. We'd better divide into four search parties, said Peter, then all go in different directions. Whoever finds him must come back here at once and— Search parties, son of Adam, said Mr. Beaver. What for? Why, to look for Edmund, of course. There's no point in looking for him, said Mr. Beaver. What do you mean, said Susan? He can't be far away yet— and we've got to find him. What do you mean when you say there's no use looking for him? The reason there's no use looking, said Mr. Beaver, is that we know already where he's gone. Everyone stared in amazement. Don't you understand, said Mr. Beaver. He's gone to her, to the White Witch. He has betrayed us all. Oh, surely. Oh, really, said Susan. He can't have done that. Can't he? said Mr. Beaver, looking very hard at the three children, 
and everything they wanted to say died on their lips, for each felt suddenly quite certain inside that this was exactly what Edmund had done. "'But will he know the way?' said Peter. "'Has he been in this country before?' asked Mr. Beaver. "'Has he ever been here alone?' "'Yes,' said Lucy, almost in a whisper. "'I'm afraid he has.' "'And did he tell you what he'd done or who he'd met?' "'Well, no, he didn't,' said Lucy. "'Then mark my words,' said Mr. Beaver. "'He has already met the White Witch and joined her side "'and been told where she lives. "'I didn't like to mention it before, he being your brother and all. "'But the moment I set eyes on that brother of yours, I said to myself,' treacherous. He had the look of one who has been with the witch and eaten her food. You can always tell them if you've lived long in Narnia. Something about their eyes. All the same, said Peter in a rather choking sort of voice, we'll still have to go and look for him. He is our brother after all, even if he is rather a little beast, and he's only a kid. "'Go to the witch's house,' said Mrs. Beaver. "'Don't you see that the only chance of saving either him or yourselves "'is to keep away from her?' "'What do you mean?' said Lucy. "'Why, all she wants is to get all four of you. "'She's thinking all the time of those four thrones at Care Paravel. "'Once you were all four inside her house, her job would be done, "'and there'd be four new statues in her collection.' "'before you'd had time to speak. "'But she'll keep him alive as long as he's the only one she's got, "'because she'll want to use him as a decoy, "'as bait to catch the rest of you with.' "'Oh, can no one help us?' wailed Lucy. "'Only Aslan,' said Mr. Beaver. "'We must go on and meet him. "'That's our only chance now.' "'It seems to me, my dears,' said Mrs. Beaver, "'that it is very important to know just when he slipped away. "'How much he can tell her depends on how much he heard. "'For instance, had we started talking of Aslan before he left? "'If not, then we may do very well, "'for she won't know that Aslan has come to Narnia, "'or that we are meeting him and will be quite off her guard "'as far as that is concerned.' "'I don't remember his being here when we were talking about Aslan,' began Peter, but Lucy interrupted him. "'Oh, yes, he was,' she said miserably. "'Don't you remember? It was he who asked whether the witch couldn't turn Aslan into stone, too.' "'So he did by Jove,' said Peter. "'Just the sort of thing he would say, too.' "'Worse and worse,' said Mr. Beaver.' And the next thing is this. Was he still here? When I told you that the place for meeting Aslan was the stone table? And of course no one knew the answer to this question. Because if he was, continued Mr. Beaver, then she'll simply sledge down in that direction and get between us and the stone table and catch us on our way down. In fact, we shall be cut off from Aslan. But that isn't what she'll do first, 
said Mrs. Beaver. Not if I know her. The moment that Edmund tells her that we're all here, she'll set out to catch us this very night. And if he's been gone about half an hour, she'll be here in about mm, another twenty minutes. You're right, Mrs. Beaver, said her husband. We must all get away from here. There's not a moment to lose. Chapter 9, page 88, In the Witch's House and now, of course, you want to know what had happened to Edmund. He had eaten his share of the dinner, but he hadn't really enjoyed it because he was thinking all the time about Turkish delight. And there's nothing that spoils the taste of good ordinary food half so much as the memory of bad magic food. Annie had heard the conversation and hadn't enjoyed it much either, because he kept on thinking that the others were taking no notice of him and trying to give him the cold shoulder. They weren't but he imagined it. And then he had listened until Mr. Beaver told them about Aslan, and until he had heard the whole arrangement for meeting Aslan at the stone table. It was then that he began very quietly to edge himself under the curtain which hung over the door. For the mention of Aslan gave him a mysterious and horrible feeling, just as it gave the others a mysterious and lovely feeling." Just as Mr. Beaver had been repeating the rhyme about Adam's flesh and Adam's bone, Edmund had been very quietly turning the door handle. And just before Mr. Beaver had begun telling them that the white witch wasn't really human at all, but half a djinn and half a giantess, Edmund had got outside into the snow and cautiously closed the door behind him. You mustn't think that even now Edmund was quite so bad that he actually wanted his brother and sisters to be turned into stone. He did want Turkish delight, and to be a prince, and later a king, and to pay Peter out for calling him a beast. As for what the witch would do with the others, he didn't want her to be particularly nice to them, certainly not to put them on the same level as himself. But he managed to believe, or to pretend he believed, that she wouldn't do anything very bad to them, because he said to himself, all these people who say nasty things about her are her enemies, and probably half of it isn't true. She was jolly nice to me, anyway, much nicer than they are. I expect she is the rightful queen, really. Anyway, she'll be better than that awful Aslan. At least that was the excuse he made in his own mind for what he was doing. It wasn't a very good excuse, however, for deep down inside him he really knew that the White Witch was bad and cruel. The first thing he realized when he got outside and found the snow falling all round him was that he had left his coat behind in the beaver's house, and of course there was no chance of going back to get it now. The next thing he realized was that the daylight was almost gone, for it had been nearly three o'clock when they sat down to dinner and the winter days were short. He hadn't reckoned on this, but he had to make the best of it, so he turned up his collar and shuffled across the top of the dam, luckily it wasn't so slippery since the snow had fallen, to the far side of the river. It was pretty bad when he reached the far side. It was growing darker every minute, and what with that and the snowflakes swirling all round him, he could hardly see three feet ahead. And then, too, there was no road. He kept slipping into deep drifts of snow, and skidding on frozen puddles, and tripping over fallen tree trunks, and sliding down steep banks, and barking his shins against rocks, till he was wet and cold and bruised all over. The silence and the loneliness were dreadful. 
In fact, I really think he might have given up the whole plan and gone back and owned up and made friends with the others if he hadn't happened to say to himself, When I'm king of Narnia, the first thing I shall do will be to make some decent roads. And of course that set him off thinking about being a king and all the other things he would do, and this cheered him up a good deal. He had just settled in his mind what sort of palace he would have, and how many cars, and all about his private cinema, and where the principal railways would run, and what laws he would make against beavers and dams, and was putting the finishing touches to some schemes for keeping Peter in his place, when the weather changed. First, the snow stopped. Then a wind sprang up, and it became freezing cold. Finally, the clouds rolled away, and the moon came out. It was a full moon, and shining on all that snow, it made everything almost as bright as day, only the shadows were rather confusing. He would never have found his way if the moon hadn't come out by the time he got to the other river. You remember he had seen, when they first arrived at the beavers, a smaller river flowing into the great one lower down. He now reached this and turned to follow it up. But the little valley down which it came was much steeper and rockier than the one he had just left and much overgrown with bushes, so that he could not have managed it at all in the dark. Even as it was, he got wet through for he had to stoop under branches and great loads of snow came sliding off onto his back. And every time this happened, he thought more and more how he hated Peter, just as if all this had been Peter's fault. But at last he came to a part where it was more level and the valley opened out, and there, on the other side of the river, quite close to him, in the middle of a little plain between two hills, he saw what must be the white witch's house and the moon was shining brighter than ever. The house was really a small castle. It seemed to be all towers, little towers with long pointed spires on them, sharp as needles. They looked like huge dunces' caps or sorcerers' caps, and they shone in the moonlight, and their long shadows looked strange on the snow. Edmund began to be afraid of the house. But it was too late to think of turning back now. He crossed the river on the ice and walked up to the house. There was nothing stirring, not the slightest sound anywhere. Even his own feet made no noise on the deep, newly fallen snow. He walked on and on, past corner after corner of the house, and past turret after turret to find the door. He had to go right round to the far side before he found it. It was a huge arch but the great iron gate stood wide open. Edmund crept up to the arch and looked inside into the courtyard, and there he saw a sight that nearly made his heart stop beating. Just inside the gate, with the moonlight shining on it, stood an enormous lion crouched as if it was ready to spring. And Edmund stood in the shadow of the arch, afraid to go on and afraid to go back, with his knees knocking together, he stood there so long that his teeth would have been chattering with cold, even if they had not been chattering with fear. How long this really lasted, I don't know, but it seemed to Edmund to last for hours. Then at last he began to wonder why the lion was standing so still, for it hadn't moved one inch since he first set eyes on it. Edmund now ventured a little nearer, still keeping in the shadow of the arch as much as he could. He now saw from the way the lion was standing that it couldn't have been looking at him at all. But supposing it turns its head, thought Edmund. In fact, it was staring at something else, 
namely a little dwarf who stood with his back to it, about four feet away. Aha, thought Edmund, when it springs at the dwarf, then will be my chance to escape. But still the lion never moved, nor did the dwarf. And now at last Edmund remembered what the others had said about the white witch turning people into stone. Perhaps this was only a stone lion. And as soon as he had thought of that, he noticed that the lion's back and the top of its head were covered with snow. Of course it must be only a statue. No living animal would have let itself get covered with snow. Then very slowly, and with his heart beating as if it would burst, Edmund ventured to go up to the lion. Even now he hardly dared to touch it, but at last he put out his hand very quickly and did. It was cold stone. He had been frightened of a mere statue. The relief which Edmund felt was so great that in spite of the cold he suddenly got warm all over right down to his toes, and at the same time there came into his head what seemed a perfectly lovely idea. Probably, he thought, this is the great lion Aslan that they were all talking about. She's caught him already and turned him into stone. So that's the end of all their fine ideas about him. Pooh, who's afraid of Aslan? And he stood there gloating over the stone lion, and presently he did something very silly and childish. He took a stump of lead pencil out of his pocket and scribbled a moustache on the lion's upper lip, and then a pair of spectacles on its eyes. Then he said, Yeah, silly old Aslan, how do you like being a stone? You thought yourself mighty fine, didn't you? But in spite of the scribbles on it, the face of the great stone beast still looked so terrible and sad and noble, staring up in the moonlight, that Edmund didn't really get any fun out of jeering at it. He turned away and began to cross the courtyard. As he got into the middle of it, he saw that there were dozens of statues all about, standing here and there rather as the pieces stand on a chessboard when it is halfway through the game. There were stone satyrs and stone wolves and bears and foxes and catamountains of stone. There were lovely stone shapes that looked like women but who were really the spirits of trees. There was the great shape of a centaur and a winged horse and a long lithe creature that Edmund took to be a dragon. They all looked so strange standing there perfectly lifelike and also perfectly still in the bright cold moonlight that it was eerie work crossing the courtyard. Right in the very middle stood a huge shape like a man, but as tall as a tree with a fierce face and a shaggy beard and a great club in its right hand. Even though he knew that it was only a stone giant and not a live one, Edmund did not like going past it. He now saw that there was a dim light showing from a doorway on the far side of the courtyard. He went to it. There was a flight of stone steps going up to an open door. Edmund went up them. Across the threshold lay a great wolf. It's all right. It's all right, he kept saying to himself. It's only a stone wolf. It can't hurt me. And he raised his leg to step over it. Instantly the huge creature rose with all the hair bristling along its back, opened a great red mouth and said in a growling voice, Who's there? Who's there? Stand still, stranger, and tell me who you are. If you please, sir, said Edmund, trembling so that he could hardly speak. 
My name is Edmund, and I'm the son of Adam that Her Majesty met in the wood the other day, and I've come to bring her the news that my brother and sisters are now in Narnia, quite close, in the beaver's house. She she wanted to see them. I will tell Her Majesty, said the wolf. Meanwhile, stand still on the threshold as you value your life. Then it vanished into the house. Edmund stood and waited, his fingers aching with cold and his heart pounding in his chest, and presently the gray wolf, Maugrim, the chief of the witch's secret police, came bounding back and said, Come in, come in, fortunate favorite of the queen, or else not so fortunate. And Edmund went in, taking great care not to tread on the wolf's paws. He found himself in a long, gloomy hall with many pillars, full, as the courtyard had been, of statues. The one nearest the door was a little fawn with a very sad expression on its face, and Edmund couldn't help wondering if this might be Lucy's friend. The only light came from a single lamp, and close beside this sat the white witch. "'I've come, Your Majesty,' said Edmund, rushing eagerly forward. "'How dare you come alone?' said the witch in a terrible voice. "'Did I not tell you to bring the others with you?' "'Please, Your Majesty,' said Edmund. "'I've done the best I can. I've brought them quite close. "'They're in the little house on top of the dam just up the river with Mr. and Mrs. Beaver.' "'A slow, cruel smile came over the witch's face. "'Is this all your news?' she asked. "'No, Your Majesty,' said Edmund and proceeded to tell her all he had heard before leaving the beaver's house. What? Aslan? cried the queen. Aslan, is this true? If I find you have lied to me. Please, I'm only repeating what they said, stammered Edmund. But the queen, who was no longer attending to him, clapped her hands. Instantly, the same dwarf whom Edmund had seen with her before appeared. "'Make ready our sledge,' ordered the witch, "'and use the harness without bells.'" Chapter 10. The Spell Begins to Break "'Now we must go back to Mr. and Mrs. Beaver "'and the three other children. "'As soon as Mr. Beaver said, "'There's no time to lose,' "'everyone began bundling themselves into coats "'except Mrs. Beaver, "'who started picking up sacks "'and laying them on the table and said, "'Now, Mr. Beaver, just reach down that ham.' And here's a packet of tea, and there's sugar, and some matches, and if someone will get two or three loaves out of the crock over there in the corner. What are you doing, Mrs. Beaver? exclaimed Susan. Packing a load for each of us, dearie, said Mrs. Beaver very coolly. You didn't think we'd set out on a journey with nothing to eat, did you? But we haven't time, said Susan, buttoning the collar of her coat. She may be here any minute. That's what I say, chimed in Mr. Beaver. "'Get along with you all,' said his wife. "'Think it over, Mr. Beaver. "'She can't be here for a quarter of an hour at least.' "'But don't we want as big a start as we can possibly get,' said Peter, "'if we're to reach the stone table before her?' "'You've got to remember that, Mrs. Beaver,' said Susan. "'As soon as she has looked in here and finds we're gone, "'she'll be off at top speed.' "'That she will,' said Mrs. Beaver. "'But we can't get there before her whatever we do, "'for she'll be on a sledge and we'll be walking.' "'Then have we no hope?' said Susan. 
"'Now, don't you get fussing, there's a dear,' said Mrs. Beaver. "'But just get a half a dozen clean handkerchiefs out of the drawer. "'Course we've got a hope. "'We can't get there before her, but we can keep under cover "'and go by ways she won't expect and perhaps we'll get through.' "'That's true enough, Mrs. Beaver,' said her husband. "'But it's time we were out of this.' "'And don't you start fussing either, Mr. Beaver,' said his wife. "'There, that's better. There's five loads, and the smallest for the smallest of us. "'That's you, my dear,' she added, looking at Lucy. "'Oh, do please come on,' said Lucy. "'Well, I'm nearly ready now,' answered Mrs. Beaver at last, "'allowing her husband to help her into her snow-boots. "'I suppose the sewing-machine's too heavy to bring?' "'Yes, it is,' said Mr. Beaver, "'a great deal too heavy, "'and you don't think you'll be able to use it "'while we're on the run, I suppose?' "'I can't abide the thought of that witch "'fiddling with it,' said Mrs. Beaver, "'and breaking it or stealing it as likely as not. "'Oh, please, please, please do hurry,' said the three children, "'and so at last they all got outside "'and Mr. Beaver locked the door. "'It'll delay her a bit,' he said and they set off, all carrying their loads over their shoulders. The snow had stopped, and the moon had come out when they began their journey. They went in single file, first Mr. Beaver, then Lucy, then Peter, then Susan, and Mrs. Beaver last of all. Mr. Beaver led them across the dam, and on to the right bank of the river, and then along a very rough sort of path among the trees right down by the river bank. The sides of the valley, shining in the moonlight, towered up far above them on either hand. "'Best keep down here as much as possible,' he said. "'She'll have to keep to the top, for you couldn't bring a sledge down here.' "'It would have been a pretty enough scene to look at it through a window from a comfortable armchair. "'And even as things were, Lucy enjoyed it at first. "'But as they went on walking and walking and walking, "'and as the sack she was carrying felt heavier and heavier, "'she began to wonder how she was going to keep up at all.' and she stopped looking at the dazzling brightness of the frozen river with all its waterfalls of ice, and at the white masses of the treetops, and the great glaring moon and the countless stars, and could only watch the little short legs of Mr. Beaver going pad, 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 pad through the snow in front of her as if they were never going to stop. Then the moon disappeared, and the snow began to fall once more. And at last Lucy was so tired that she was almost asleep and walking at the same time, when suddenly she found that Mr. Beaver had turned away from the river bank to the right and was leading them steeply uphill into the very thickest bushes. And then as she came fully awake, she found that Mr. Beaver was vanishing into a little hole in the bank, which had been almost hidden under the bushes, until you were quite on top of it. In fact, by the time she realized what was happening, only his short flat tail was showing. Lucy immediately stooped down and crawled in after him. Then she heard noises of scrambling and puffing and panting behind her, and in a moment all five of them were inside. "'Where ever is this?' said Peter's voice, sounding tired and pale in the darkness. "'I hope you know what I mean by a voice sounding pale.' "'It's an old hiding place for beavers in bad times,' said Mr. Beaver, "'and a great secret. It's not much of a place, but we must get a few hours' sleep.' "'If you hadn't all been in such a plaguy fuss when we were starting, "'I'd have brought some pillows,' said Mrs. Beaver. "'It wasn't nearly such a nice cave as Mr. Tumnus's, Lucy thought, "'just a hole in the ground, but dry and earthy. 
It was very small, so that when they all lay down they were all a bundle of clothes together, and what with that and being warmed up by their long walk, they were really rather snug. If only the floor of the cave had been a little smoother. Then Mrs. Beaver handed round in the dark a little flask out of which everyone drank something. It made one cough and splutter a little and stung the throat, but it also made you feel deliciously warm after you'd swallowed it, and everyone went straight to sleep. It seemed to Lucy only the next minute, though really it was hours and hours later, when she woke up feeling a little cold and dreadfully stiff and thinking how she would like a hot bath. Then she felt a set of long whiskers tickling her cheek and saw the cold daylight coming in through the mouth of the cave. But immediately after that, she was very wide awake indeed, and so was everyone else. In fact, they were all sitting up with their mouths and eyes wide open, listening to a sound which was the very sound they'd all been thinking of and sometimes imagining they heard. During their walk last night, it was a sound of jingling bells. Mr. Beaver was out of the cave like a flash the moment he heard it. Perhaps you think, as Lucy thought for a moment, that this was a very silly thing to do. But it was really a very sensible one. He knew he could scramble to the top of the bank among bushes and brambles without being seen, and he wanted, above all things, to see which way the witch's sledge went. The others all sat in the cave, waiting and wondering. They waited nearly five minutes. Then they heard something that frightened them very much. They heard voices. Oh, thought Lucy, he's been seen. She's caught him. Great was their surprise when a little later they heard Mr. Beaver's voice calling to them from just outside the cave. It's all right, he was shouting. Come out, Mrs. Beaver. Come out, sons and daughters of Adam. It's all right. It isn't her. This was bad grammar, of course, but that is how beavers talk when they are excited. I mean, in Narnia, in our world, they usually don't talk at all. So Mrs. Beaver and the children came bundling out of the cave, all blinking in the daylight, and with earth all over them, and looking very frosty and unbrushed and uncombed, and with the sleep in their eyes. "'Come on!' cried Mr. Beaver, who was almost dancing with delight. "'Come and see. This is a nasty knock for the witch. It looks as if her power is already crumbling.' "'What do you mean, Mr. Beaver?' panted Peter as they all scrambled up the steep bank of the valley together. "'Didn't I tell you,' answered Mr. Beaver, "'that she'd made it always winter and never Christmas. "'Didn't I tell you? "'Well, just come and see.' "'And then they were all at the top and did see. "'It was a sledge, "'and it was reindeer with bells on their harness. "'But they were far bigger than the witch's reindeer, "'and they were not white but brown. "'And on the sledge sat a person "'whom everyone knew the moment they set eyes on him.' He was a huge man in a bright red robe, bright as hollyberries, with a hood that had fur inside it, and a great white beard that fell like a foamy waterfall over his chest. Everyone knew him because, though you see people of his sort only in Narnia, you see pictures of them and hear them talked about, even in our world, the world on this side of the wardrobe door. But when you really see them in Narnia, it is rather different. Some of the pictures of Father Christmas in our world make him look only funny and jolly. But now that the children actually stood looking at him, they didn't find it quite like that. He was so big and so glad and so real that they all became quite still. They felt very glad, but also solemn. I've come at last, said he. 
She has kept me out for a long time, but I have got in at last. Aslan is on the move. The witch's magic is weakening. And Lucy felt running through her that deep shiver of gladness which you only get if you are being solemn and still. And now, said Father Christmas, for your presence. There is a new and better sewing machine for you, Mrs. Beaver. I will drop it in your house as I pass. If you please, sir, said Mrs. Beaver, making a curtsy, it's locked up. Locks and bolts make no difference to me, said Father Christmas, and as for you, Mr. Beaver, when you get home, you will find your dam finished and mended and all the leaks stopped and a new sluice gate fitted. Mr. Beaver was so pleased that he opened his mouth very wide and then found he couldn't say anything at all. Peter, Adam's son, said Father Christmas. Here, sir, said Peter. These are your presents, was the answer, and they are tools, not toys. The time to use them is perhaps near at hand. Bear them well. With these words he handed to Peter a shield and a sword. The shield was the color of silver, and across it there wrapped a red lion as bright as a ripe strawberry at the moment when you pick it. The hilt of the sword was of gold, and it had a sheath and a sword belt and everything it needed, and it was just the right size and weight for Peter to use. Peter was silent and solemn as he received these gifts, for he felt they were a very serious kind of present. Susan, Eve's daughter, said Father Christmas, these are for you. And he handed her a bow and a quiver full of arrows and a little ivory horn. You must use the bow only in great need, he said, for I do not mean you to fight in the battle. It does not easily miss. And when you put this horn to your lips and blow it, then, wherever you are, I think help of some kind will come to you. Last of all, he said, Lucy, Eve's daughter. And Lucy came forward. He gave her a little bottle of what looked like glass, but people said afterward that it was made of diamond, and a small dagger. In this bottle, he said, there is a cordial made of the juice of one of the fire flowers that grow in the mountains of the sun. If you or any of your friends is hurt, a few drops of this will restore them and the dagger is to defend yourself at great need, for you also are not to be in the battle. Why, sir, said Lucy, I think, I don't know, but I think I could be brave enough. That is not the point, he said, but battles are ugly when women fight, and now, here he suddenly looked less grave, here is something for the moment for you all, and he brought out, I suppose from the big bag at his back, but nobody quite saw him do it, a large tray containing five cups and saucers, a bowl of lump sugar, a jug of cream, and a great big teapot all sizzling and piping hot. Then he cried out, Merry Christmas! Long live the true king! And cracked his whip, and he and the reindeer and the sledge and all were out of sight before anyone realized that they had started. Peter had just drawn his sword out of its sheath and was showing it to Mr. Beaver when Mrs. Beaver said, now then, now then, don't stand talking there till the tea's got cold.
Beasts like men come and help to carry the tray down and we'll have breakfast. What a mercy I thought of bringing the bread knife. So down the steep bank they went and back to the cave, and Mr. Beaver cut some of the bread and ham into sandwiches, and Mrs. Beaver poured out the tea, and everyone enjoyed themselves. But long before they had finished enjoying themselves, Mr. Beaver said, Time to be moving on now. Chapter 11 Aslan is Nearer Edmund, meanwhile, had been having a most disappointing time. When the dwarf had gone to get the sledge ready, he expected that the witch would start being nice to him, as she had been at their last meeting. But she said nothing at all. And when at last Edmund plucked up his courage to say, Please, Your Majesty, could I have some Turkish delight? You, you said, she answered, Silence, fool! Then she appeared to change her mind and said as if to herself, And yet it will not do to have the brat fainting on the way. And once more clapped her hands. Another dwarf appeared. Bring the human creature food and drink, she said. The dwarf went away and presently returned, bringing an iron bowl with some water in it and an iron plate with a hunk of dry bread on it. He grinned in a repulsive manner as he set them down on the floor beside Edmund and said, Turkish delight for the little prince. Ha, ha, ha. Take it away, said Edmund sulkily. I don't want dry bread. But the witch suddenly turned on him with such a terrible expression on her face that he apologized and began to nibble at the bread, though it was so stale he could hardly get it down. You may be glad enough of it before you taste bread again, said the witch. While he was still chewing away, the first dwarf came back and announced that the sledge was ready. The white witch rose and went out, ordering Edmund to go with her. The snow was again falling as they came into the courtyard, but she took no notice of that and made Edmund sit beside her on the sledge. But before they drove off, she called Maugrim, and he came bounding like an enormous dog to the side of the sledge. Take with you the swiftest of your wolves and go at once to the house of the beavers, said the witch, and kill whatever you find there. If they are already gone, then make all speed to the stone table, but do not be seen. Wait for me there in hiding. I, meanwhile, must go many miles to the west before I find a place where I can drive across the river. You may overtake these humans before they reach the stone table. You will know what to do if you find them. I hear and obey, O oh queen, growled the wolf, and immediately he shot away into the snow and darkness as quickly as a horse can gallop. In a few minutes he had called another wolf and was with him down on the dam and sniffing at the beaver's house, but of course they found it empty. It would have been a dreadful thing for the beavers and the children if the night had remained fine, for the wolves would then have been able to follow their trail and ten to one would have overtaken them before they had got to the cave. But now that the snow had begun again, the scent was cold and even the footprints were covered up. Meanwhile, the dwarf whipped up the reindeer, and the witch and Edmund drove out under the archway and on and away into the darkness and the cold. This was a terrible journey for Edmund, who had no coat. Before they had been going quarter of an hour, all the front of him was covered with snow. He soon stopped trying to shake it off because... As quickly as he did that, a new lot gathered, and he was so tired. Soon he was wet to the skin, and, oh, how miserable he was. It didn't look now as if the witch intended to make him a king. 
all the things he had said to make himself believe that she was good and kind, and that her side was really the right side, sounded to him silly now. He would have given anything to meet the others at this moment, even Peter. The only way to comfort himself now was to try to believe that the whole thing was a dream, and that he might wake up at any moment. And as they went on, hour after hour, it did come to seem like a dream. This lasted longer than I could describe even if I wrote pages and pages about it. But I will skip on to the time when the snow had stopped and the morning had come and they were racing along in the daylight. And still they went on and on with no sound but the everlasting swish of the snow and the creaking of the reindeer's harness. And then at last the witch said, What have we here? Stop. And they did. How Edmund hoped she was going to say something about breakfast. But she had stopped for quite a different reason. A little way off, at the foot of a tree, sat a merry party, a squirrel and his wife, with their children and two satyrs, and a dwarf, and an old dog fox, all on stools round a table. Edmund couldn't quite see what they were eating, but it smelled lovely, and there seemed to be decorations of holly, and he wasn't at all sure that he didn't see something like a plum pudding. At the moment when the sledge stopped, the fox, who was obviously the oldest person present, had just risen to its feet, holding a glass in its right paw as if it was going to say something. But when the whole party saw the sledge stopping and who was in it, all the gaiety went out of their faces. The father squirrel stopped eating with his fork halfway to his mouth, and one of the satyrs stopped with its fork actually in its mouth, and the baby squirrel squeaked with terror. "'What is the meaning of this?' asked the witch queen." Nobody answered. Speak, vermin, she said again. Or do you want my dwarf to find you a tongue with his whip? What is the meaning of all this gluttony, this waste, this self-indulgence? Where did you get all these things? Please, your majesty, said the fox. We were given them. And if I might make so bold as to drink your majesty's very good health, who gave them to you? said the witch. F -f Father Christmas, stammered the fox. What? roared the witch, springing from the sledge and taking a few strides nearer to the terrified animals. He has not been here. He cannot have been here. How dare you? But no. Say you have been lying, and you shall even now be forgiven. At that moment, one of the young squirrels lost its head completely. He has! He has! He has! It squeaked, beating its little spoon on the table. Edmund saw the witch bite her lips so that a drop of blood appeared on her white cheek. Then she raised her wand. Oh, don't, don't, please don't, shouted Edmund. But even while he was shouting, she had waved her wand, and instantly, where the merry party had been, there were only statues of creatures, one with its stone fork fixed forever, halfway to its stone mouth, seated round a stone table, on which there were stone plates and a stone plum pudding. As for you, said the witch, giving Edmund a stunning blow on the face as she remounted the sledge, let that teach you to ask favor for spies and traitors. Drive on! And Edmund, for the first time in this story, felt sorry for someone besides himself. It seemed so pitiful to think of those little stone figures sitting there all the silent days and all the dark nights, 
year after year, till the moss grew on them, and at last even their faces crumbled away. Now they were steadily racing on again, and soon Edmund noticed that the snow which splashed against them as they rushed through it was much wetter than it had been all last night. At the same time he noticed that he was feeling much less cold. It was also becoming foggy. In fact, every minute it grew foggier and warmer, and the sledge was not running nearly as well as it had been running up till now. At first he thought this was because the reindeer were tired, but soon he saw that that couldn't be the real reason. The sledge jerked and skidded and kept on jolting as if it had struck against stones, and however the dwarfs whipped the poor reindeer, the sledge went slower and slower. There also seemed to be a curious noise all round them, but the noise of their driving and jolting and the dwarf shouting at the reindeer prevented Edmund from hearing what it was, until suddenly the sledge stuck so fast that it wouldn't go on at all. When that happened, there was a moment's silence, and in that silence Edmund could at last listen to the other noise properly, a strange, sweet, rustling, chattering noise, and yet not so strange, for he'd heard it before, if only he could remember where. Then all at once he did remember. It was the noise of running water. All round them, though out of sight, there were streams, chattering, murmuring, bubbling, splashing, and even in the distance, roaring. And his heart gave a great leap, though he hardly knew why, when he realized that the frost was over, and much nearer there was a drip, drip, drip from the branches of all the trees. And then, as he looked at one tree, he saw a great load of snow slide off it, and for the first time since he had entered Narnia, he saw the dark green of a fir tree. But he hadn't time to listen or watch any longer, for the witch said, Don't sit staring, fool! Get out and help! And of course Edmund had to obey. He stepped out into the snow, but it was really only slush by now, and began helping the dwarf to get the sledge out of the muddy hole it had got into. They got it out in the end, and by being very cruel to the reindeer, the dwarf managed to get it on the move again, and they drove a little further. And now the snow was really melting in earnest, and patches of green grass were beginning to appear in every direction. Unless you have looked at a world of snow as long as Edmund had been looking at it, you will hardly be able to imagine what a relief those green patches were after the endless white. Then the sledge stopped again. It's no good, your majesty, said the dwarf. We can't sledge in this thaw. Then we must walk, said the witch. We shall never overtake them walking, growled the dwarf. Not with the start they've got. Are you my counselor or my slave? said the witch. Do as you're told. Tie the hands of the human creature behind it and keep hold of the end of the rope and take your whip and cut the harness of the reindeer. They'll find their own way home. The dwarf obeyed, and in a few minutes Edmund found himself being forced to walk as fast as he could with his hands tied behind him. He kept on slipping in the slush and mud and wet grass, and every time he slipped, the dwarf gave him a curse, sometimes a flick with the whip. The witch walked behind the dwarf and kept on saying, Faster! Faster! Every moment the patches of green grew bigger and the patches of snow grew smaller. 
Every moment, more and more of the trees shook off their robes of snow. Soon, wherever you looked, instead of white shapes, you saw the dark green of firs or the black prickly branches of bare oaks and beeches and elms. Then the mist turned from white to gold and presently cleared away altogether. Shafts of delicious sunlight struck down onto the forest floor and overhead you could see a blue sky between the treetops. Soon there were more wonderful things happening. Coming suddenly round a corner into a glade of silver birch trees, Edmund saw the ground covered in all directions with little yellow flowers, celandines. The noise of water grew louder. Presently they actually crossed a stream. Beyond it they found snowdrops growing. "'Mind your own business,' said the dwarf, when he saw that Edmund had turned his head to look at them, and he gave the rope a vicious jerk. But of course this didn't prevent Edmund from seeing— only five minutes later he noticed a dozen crocuses growing round the foot of an old tree, gold and purple and white. Then came a sound even more delicious than the sound of the water. Close beside the path they were following, a bird suddenly chirped from the branch of a tree. It was answered by the chuckle of another bird a little further off, and then, as if that had been a signal, there was chattering and chirruping in every direction, and then a moment of full song, and within five minutes the whole wood was ringing with the bird's music, and wherever Edmund's eyes turned he saw birds alighting on branches, or sailing overhead, or chasing one another, or having their little quarrels, or tidying up their feathers with their beaks. "'Faster! Faster!' said the witch. There was no trace of the fog now. The sky became bluer and bluer, and now there were white clouds hurrying across it from time to time. In the wide glades there were primroses. A light breeze sprang up which scattered drops of moisture from the swaying branches and carried cool, delicious scents against the faces of the travelers. The trees began to come fully alive. The larches and birches were covered with green, the laburnums with gold. Soon the beech trees had put forth their delicate, transparent leaves. As the travelers walked under them, the light also became green. A bee buzzed across their path. "'This is no thaw,' said the dwarf, suddenly stopping. "'This is spring. What are we to do? Your winter has been destroyed, I tell you. This is Aslan's doing.' "'If Either of you mentions that name again, said the witch. He shall instantly be killed. 